Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of series two of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast where we talk about athlete career transition to life after sport. Episode one featured Harry Moffat, former SAS soldier and registered psychologist. The parallels Harry drew between the military and sport were uncanny. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Olympian Sally Keogh. Sally is a three-time Olympic Rome representative and now, just for fun, she's playing elite women's rugby, a sport she rediscovered after falling in love with it as a youngster in Toowoomba, Queensland. Sally last played competitive rugby in primary school after being the first female to represent the region in the state championships. Sally's story is fascinating, combining study with training for a physically demanding sport where athletes are literally living in four-year cycles. Sally is now working in the financial services sector with one of Australia's leading businesses, and by any measure, her transition has been a success. Please enjoy my conversation with Sally Keogh. When we first met, uh, I asked you whether you'd be interested in joining the podcast, and you said you would, and seven or eight months later, with COVID-19 isolation still going, here we are. So it's great to have you here. And I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that you successfully transitioned to life after sport but how did you combine your rowing commitments with preparing for what was going to be next because clearly a rowing career wasn't going to last for 30 or 40 years and it was going to pay the bills um i think for me i grew up in in rowing so i was one of those young kids who excelled really really quickly and really, really early rightly or wrongly and so i was 20 going to my first Olympics um, and then ended up doing two more after that and I think it was after my it was after my first Olympics and I was getting to the end of my undergrad and it, it really bothered me that I was just a roller and I didn't have much else other than a bit of study but that was coming to an end and I, I, it was about 2010 so about six years into my professional career that I really decided that I had to figure out or start paving that way for Sally, who's not rowing, um, and have a plan B almost. It wasn't so much that I was falling out of plan A. It was almost to feel like I hadn't, I didn't have everything in this bucket called rowing because I had probably experienced by that stage that it was probably a little bit fickle and it could end at any time, be it from injury or just not being able to um, sit in that environment anymore. Um, so it was pretty, pretty, pretty early on in my career that I decided I needed it to ensure that I had my academics going pretty, pretty well and truly going. And then also had started the work experience because by the end of my career, I really feared, and it was a genuine fear that I was a three-time Olympian, um, highly educated with zero experience, um, and that, that fear almost haunted me actually. The, I really feared coming out of sport and not having much else. And so that paving that way started really, really early for me. And then by the end of the career, I don't think I got it right, but at least I've invested in it. And I mean, I think if you, if you look about, if you look at what you, you did after that first Olympics, what sort of dawned on you? Was it the, the case of, oh, crikey, I could actually finish tomorrow and I've got nothing to sort of fall back on? Or was it more... A, a sort of a gentle realisation that over a period of time you need to equip yourself for what's going to happen in life after sport? Yeah, I don't think it really had dawned on me um, whether that, that it was realistically that it could end tomorrow for me due to injury. I was probably quite stumbled in that regard and I had some probably 
pretty big injuries by that stage already, but was quite resilient and stubborn to be able to get that from them. The, the biggest turning point was sort of getting to that 22, 23-year-old me, and, and my friends had started finishing their undergrads and going into full-time employment um, and sort of hitting that next stage of adulthood, I suppose, getting a full-time job, um, not living the university lifestyle in tracksuit pants and, and actually putting on work clothes and doing other things and having money to travel overseas and go on holidays, whereas previously I was the one going overseas and I was sort of the one that didn't really have to sit around in tracksuit pants and go to university. I was doing all these cool things with rowing and it, it was this shift that they started to be look as, to me, I would perceive them as being quite established and having everything together and I would look at myself and be quite harsh myself saying, you've just got rowing. You're still the girl that started rowing at school and that's all you do. Do you think that that's a, a bit of an identity thing? And I mean, I, I know a lot of athletes really struggle with the, you know, putting the athlete identity behind them and, and rather than being Sally Keogh the rower, no, well, actually Sally Keogh, you actually work for Macquarie Bank. You used to be a rower. And I think that that, I suspect, would have been something that may have played on your mind because the other thing too at 22 or 23 years old it's not very old I mean it's a I mean I'm you know I I thought to myself around the same age that I should have gone back and done a law degree and I thought to myself at 23 years old I was too old to do that and I think to myself now that's just a crazy way of thinking but it's it's interesting how at the time you think like that because you you look at your peers and you think what they're doing and see what they're doing and then suddenly you are, as you put it, just the rower. Yeah, definitely. I think um, if, if it was something that I could have, I'd do, do again, it would be to grow up before I really embarked on a rowing career um, because you know, I took things in the fast lane. I wanted to be Olympic champion by the age of 20. I wanted to be – I thought I knew everything um, going on and I, I had everything together. I knew how the world worked at that stage. And I, I remember being at the Beijing Olympics at the age of 20 going – I've got this, like, I know what I'm doing. Um, and then at the next Olympics, I remember thinking that thought, and I was like, oh, my God, girl, get your stuff together. Like, you didn't have any, you didn't know what was going on. And then by the time I finished my career and I reflect that to sort of that 18, 19, 20-year-old who, um, who just really didn't, uh, didn't have that awareness of everything else that was going on, but at the same time, it was this... Um, blissful ignorance that I, I never questioned what I was doing at the same time so it was really quite helpful to being successful well sometimes <laughs> sometimes it's better not to know what you don't know uh, than 100%. and if you if you think about the and I'm not in a rowing aficionado but I have a, a 14 year old daughter who's fallen in love with the sport and I understand the early mornings and the commitment and the multiple sessions during the day even for a school child so I imagine for an elite athlete in rowing, you are probably doing upwards of ten sessions a week in various areas of the of the training. How do you balance that with a life off the or out of the water, if you like, with respect to resting yourself, massage, recovery, and also studying? I mean, how does how did that sort of work for you? For me, it was really quite easy. Um, so when you're rowing, um, and particularly at in the Australian Institute Sports Squad, um, so you're in the national program at quite an early age. You know, every single day you're doing you 
you're having to put yourself up against the next person who then needs to be a teammate. And, and I suppose the intensity, the environment and always having to be conscious of how you're being perceived by others and making sure that you're always always there and always present, I found that quite exhausting. And so when I would go to study, I actually really relished the moment of this was mine. I didn't have to share it with anyone else. And I could really um, knuckle in and be quite focused to studying. Um, and it really broke up my day um, with feeling like I was utilising another area of my body, being my brain, but even my brain was thinking differently to how it was thought about rowing. And, and also just having that, I suppose it was my inner introvert, just absolutely relishing the fact that I didn't have to talk to anyone and I could just invest in this one thing and, and not have to care about, you know, any, anyone else. It was just me and I really enjoyed it. Do you think that that ability to focus on other other aspects of your life with, with the study especially do you think that actually helped you be be a better and a more effective athlete when you were actually either competing or training uh yeah definitely my um I, I learned later on that my ability to focus was probably higher than most um and sometimes learned about it because uh Sometimes I demanded everybody to have exactly the same level of focus that I was able to have at everything. It wasn't until later in my life that I soon realised that maybe not everybody can absolutely focus on the finest of details, you know, at 10 different layers all at once, um, and then every single stroke. So it was something I actually had to work on, but I did realise that my ability to focus in such an intense way was quite different to the majority. And, and what do you put that down to? Was that a, something that... It was innate, was it? And I know you mentioned in your story, which is just a great couple of page read about your life, and you mentioned that your parents didn't push you into anything. You just obviously naturally just flowed into rugby, into rowing, and back to rugby, which we'll get to a little later. What What do you reckon was the thing that allowed you to have that, that mindset where you could just focus on one particular task and f- for the exclusion of all others? Yeah, I think it's... Um it was, it was certainly built for, and it was something that I probably developed in childhood being the youngest child. I tended, I just tended to observe and learn by watching and understanding what people were doing around me and it, it probably just started transforming as I went through life and so, and, I, and I'm always, I'm quite a curious person so I want to know if something's happening over, over there, what created it over here and so I think just particularly in rowing in such an intense world and years and years and years of it, like that's just a rabbit hole that you can go very, very deep on. You know, it's interesting you talk about focus because I know that clearly there's a technique and there's a way to row to get the most efficient power through the water. Did that allow you to get a really good understanding of your ability to focus and as you progressed through the sport, you got to the point where you you were doing things on autopilot, essentially, which I imagine is is a state of, if you want to call it a state of flow, where the absolute elite athletes get to, and obviously at your level, Sally, with respect to rowing in the Olympics, that must have been something that maybe took a bit of practice, but once you got there, you were you could almost switch on and off as you needed to to ensure that you got the performance you wanted. Yeah, definitely. I think that naturally, without having the maturity, uh, mental maturity, that you don't quite realise what you're doing, um, but when you just keep repeating something over and over and over and over again, you go, oh, that feels good. Um, and if it feels good, you just keep repeating it, then all of a sudden you've done 2,000 strokes exactly the same. Um, but as you, as I matured, um, I definitely would 
be curious and use um, uh, movement coaches and learn more about my body and then how that went into the boat and all of a sudden that, that complexity would just keep growing and growing and growing and your, your brain had the capacity to take on as well. So you're sitting in that flow state, but then what you're thinking about, you didn't even know existed five years ago, but you're doing the same thing. Um, and I suppose for me, like, it, you know, I rode for all these years, but not one year was the same. And, and that's probably what kept me going, actually, was because I always kept discovering whether it was me maturing mentally, physically, or learning something else from the other side and experiencing different things. I was always evolving, constantly evolving. I think if I look back, the moments that I got really frustrated with the sport was when I felt like I wasn't evolving. And that might be that external pressures were trapping me or I was trapping myself um, with not knowing what my purpose was. Um, but I think that that level of focus was key because it just kept me wanting to know more if I was in the right and obviously that curiosity was extraordinarily important which you mentioned earlier about the fact that if you if you weren't curious and you were maybe just happy to continue to go through the motions that a may have impacted your performance but it also may have impacted your longevity in the sport where you may have got bored and maybe gone out and done something else and i think that if you you mentioned also about the, the analytical side and at times athletes i've spoken to have said that they've overthought things and they've made something that's relatively simple become quite complex purely because of the way that they think about it. It sounds like you had the ability to be in a situation where you could almost go back to the start and think about things in a different way, which allowed you just to continue to improve and also grow as an individual as well outside of the water. Yeah, definitely. We had this great movement coach come in and we'd always refer to him as the psychologist and he's like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a movement coach. You're like okay, I get it, it is actually quite different. Um, and one thing that he really taught me to do was like you're sitting, you're sitting in that flow state, I suppose, and you're just pushing one stroke out after the other. But while you're doing what looks like exactly the same thing from the outside, uh, internally you're sort of looking at yourself like a piece of Lego with all these little joints that can be t- slightly changed. And you might go from that really um, micro viewpoint of yourself internally and then he would always say then make sure you step back outside yourself and look at your and look at yourself like you would in video and so you'd be constantly rolling maybe three strokes with doing all these little tweaks to all these pieces of lego that you made out of and then walking um then taking the outside perspective and going oh look at me move that's now nice and really fluid and so when you talk about yeah absolutely you can overthink it but i think that's where the beauty of if you're overthinking, you're not in flow. And so once you can get into that flow, then you're just you're doing little tweaks and it's just like this beautiful little, you know, watching an artist finish up a painting and they're just doing the last bit of touches and that's what they're doing. But it all looks the same. But they're seeing different little things that you can't see that they're just fixing up. And there's no doubt that there is a there is a certain beauty to rowing when, especially when there's a crew of either a, either a pair of four or an eight where everybody's in sync and you obviously you can see that regardless of what the conversation is with the team of rowers they're just in that state and it's actually quite beautiful to watch and having spent most of the summer down in Geelong watching the girls uh, row you get a really good appreciation for just how amazing the sport is 
Definitely, and I think at that level as well, when, when you see the crews winning and the, and the crews sort of towards the end, you can visually see the connection between the crews. Um, you know, the crew at the front usually is really, they just, they look as one, and then the crew sort of probably not at the front of the race is, you know, a lot of effort, but maybe not all happening at one, and then that's the true beauty of rowing, it's like you get it all right. And it pays off in dividends. Oh, look, there's no doubt. I mean, I think, and you look at younger rowers who are just starting out, you can see the way that their improvement is, is, you know, it's from regatta to regatta. And so if you you take the first rowing regatta and then the last one, it's amazing just how quickly they've they've sort of improved. One of the things that that I read with interest in your little bio was that you came back from an event and you realised you were done and you were broke or almost broke. Can you take me through what that's like? But can, before you do that, can you talk about the life of an elite rower where you are putting essentially a lot of your life on hold in order to travel the world to compete, to keep fit, to train, to do all the things that you need to do to compete in three Olympics? You're not getting paid a lot of money, if at all. So how does that, how does that work? And can you explain to the audience how you survived a significantly long career in rowing and managed to come out the other side with with, with something to show for it? Yeah, so um, rowing is obviously not a professional sport, so it relies on government funding. And if you're, let's say, if you're in the top four of the world, um, which is measured at the World Championships, if you finish in the top four, you know, you're getting an okay payment to be able to last you for 12 months. Um but I, the best way I can put it is that you're not making any savings. So if you're in the air rolling in it, but if you're starting to get to 25, 26, it's okay that you know that you're not making any savings and then you're just basically paying for what you're doing. And then by the time you get to late 20s, you're like, okay, I've got to have a plan B because I'm, I'm really not saving. I'm meant to have, I missed out on probably five years of super input or I don't have a wage or anything. Like I've, I've got nothing to me basically except for what's come in and what's gone out. Um, for me, I took a year off, and so um, after 2012 Olympics, and I worked for a, another bank, um, and that year was all about um, consolidating, so working full-time for the bank, hopefully setting up a role that I could work remotely for the next sort of few years while I finished off my own career so I could continue on with sort of being an adult and having some sort of savings and moving life on in the direction of adulthood um, and also the other stuff of you know deciding whether that's what I really wanted to do and getting my um, getting everything in check that I was coming back to for another four years to be really motivated towards Rio so coming into that last Olympiad on my way to Rio um, I'd worked for NAB and I create uh, I was very fortunate um, to have um, an executive who just got it and it was a great time in the fact that things were starting to be centralised, which meant that we had to rely on technology. And so I was probably one of their first people ever to work remotely. Um, so I worked in Adelaide while working out of Canberra and then worked in Europe while working out of Canberra. And, you know, I was living the dream. I, I'd done it. You know, technology was beautiful. It had come from, it had evolved throughout my career from not being even existing when I first started university to now working remotely. Um, so it was insane. Um, but I was working, 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 and, and my rowing was going quite well. Um, I think in 2014, we um, we set the world record that year and got bronze. So, you know, that was a 
we were, I was starting to pick up the rowing income after having a year out of the sport, so that was good. So I was effectively on dual income, um, and I, I kept with the rowing, uh, with the working for a little bit longer. And everyone's like, "Why are you doing that? You didn't need it. You got the rowing income." And I was like, "Well, I'm saving for a rainy day. Like, the rowing income's okay as long as I finish top four in the world." And is that finishing top four when you are in that that absolute elite level? Can you explain how difficult that is? Well, I think when you this is the strange thing. Like I look back on it and go, well, "Of course you needed a, a rainy day, you know, savings account." But in the middle of it, you know, well, I'm there to win, so of course I'm going to get top four in the world. You know, that's the mentality. Like top four is failure. Like fourth is failure. And you know, you're there to win, and you're get, there to get medals. So. It's not so much you start looking after or after sort of scraping to that fourth or sixth position to make sure I get paid. It's more like, oh, I'm there to win. I don't care about the payment. That's on the side. But it's when I, well, certainly as I got older and I started to, you know, I had a mortgage by that stage because I'd saved and, you know, that was one of my accomplishments of having other things going on other than rowing was buying a, um, an apartment. Um And so when I had that stress there, I had to finish top four in the world because I needed that to be able to pay for my mortgage all of a sudden. So that adulthood was starting to catch up on me a little bit as well. I had to be an adult. Um, Some people try and avoid that for as long as they possibly can, Sally. I know, but I believe that that was, you know, that was a be-all and end-all. How I was wrong, once again, if I could go back, you know, it was fine. (laughs) I'm glad I did it. It was worth it. but, yeah, so, and then in, um, in the following year, we, um, see, you've got to get top four in one regatta in the year. So it's not just pick any regatta, it's that one regatta, the World Championships, you've got to get top four, basically. Um, and that following year, it just, timing wasn't right for us. We didn't go well in the in the 2015 World Championships. Um, and we'd won medals that year and we're sitting in the top three in that boat category. Um and it just didn't click at the World Championships. It just didn't go right. And I still, to this day, not sure what went wrong. And um, we didn't get top four. And so we didn't get funding for that following year, and it was really tough. Um, so what happens from a tra- what what happens from a training perspective, and a and I guess more of a mindset perspective when you know that you don't have that. And I I probably use this term incorrectly, but you don't have that safety net there of having that additional funding, which allows you to maybe have that extra physio session or take the extra flight. I mean, so what are the sorts of things that you have to adjust to when you're not in the top four and, and you know, you've, you've, you've got other pressures that, that come to bear as a result? Yeah, so we were very fortunate um, that I was, I was based at the South Australian Institute of Sport um, and they were so supportive. So the basics of being an elite athlete were covered. You know, we... Apart from food, everything was covered. Like the, we had physio once a week, we had massage once a week. But um, the fellow who was our masseuse was a podiatrist by trade, but absolutely his passion was sports massage. But he knew that it wasn't going to pay the bill, so he just massaged um, this small group of Olympians, basically. Uh, and he was brilliant. Um, and he wouldn't like he wouldn't make any money off mass- like being our masseuse. We would just like swipe our health card, card healthcare card, sorry, um, and then he would just take that, and that's like that's that's fine. Tell me, what what was it like for you 
in the AIS environment, a lot of athletes that I've spoken with over the years have spoken about being in a bubble and the fact that their their life outside of the outside of sport is almost unreal in the sense that everything is so regimented. They basically are told when to train, where to train, what time to train, what to wear to training, what to wear to a, to a match or to a competition. Everything is structured and basically put in front of them. So they don't necessarily need to think too much about what's happening day to day and week to week, which is often the, the, the pressure that they get when they do finish is because suddenly the time's their own and they can do whatever they like. And sometimes that's where real transition problems occur. But what was it like for you at the AIS around that whole bubble of the sport? Um, I think with rowing, we were quite fortunate because we weren't on the campus most of the time. So we were down on our, at our rowing sheds, which was probably our own little bubble. Um, and it was a bubble, but you know what? You were so exhausted that when you weren't doing physical exercise, you were just staring into space or sleeping. And, and that's not even over-exaggerating. I was having this conversation with a friend not too long ago, whereas I... I I will not forget the amount of hours that I spent lying on a couch between 1pm and 3pm, not sleeping because I was too exhausted and I didn't want to sleep because training was starting at 3.30 and I sort of didn't want to be a zombie for that. With respect to the, the exhaustion side of things, and before we get, we want to talk a little bit about the AIS and your experiences with respect to support around transitioning in a second, but can you explain to the audience the amount of effort that goes into a 2,000-metre elite rowing race. Because I have an ergometer in the, in the shed next door to where I'm sitting right now, and I like to think that, you know, all five foot seven of me manages to move relatively quickly. I say to my daughter, come and join me, and then she says, Dad, you've never been in a boat. You've never been in a, in a shell. You wouldn't have a clue what you're doing, which is clearly right. But can you talk to me about what the actual physical exertion of rowing is like? Well, I think there's some anecdotes from um, previous teammates of mine who've gone on to have um, kids and had childbirth, and they said that the 2K is arguably still harder. So wow. I can't speak from my own experience, but um, <laughs> I, uh, when that day comes for me, I, I think I'll be asking for the drugs, um, if it's anything like it. I think for the, the 2K, interesting. So... The way that we really started to look at it was, um, how do I describe this? So I, the best way to describe it, I find, is uh, is flirting with the red line. And you just, you need to find your red line and then you just need to flirt with it. You can't cross it. If you cross it, it's not going to look good for you. But you've got to find, without sprinting, because if you sprint, you're going to find your red line pretty quickly and you're going to topple over it. But you've just got to, get up there pretty quickly and just sit there and sit there for as long as you can. And then when you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, you've got to time your moment to cross the red line and give it everything you've got to get to that end um, because that's where you find your capacity. And so if you can imagine you get out of the start and you just go up just above the red line and then you come in just underneath it and then you need to sit on that red line for as long as possible and the people who tend to win races these days are the ones that can go above the red line sooner um, and then have a longer time above the red line at the end of the race 
So if you can only last 200 metres at the end and somebody else has gone with 750 metres to go, they're probably going to have your number. It feels great when you're in it and you need to be really, 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 really fit to be able to do it at that intensity. Um, But as soon as you stop, your whole body is taken over with lactic acid and the last thing you want to do is sit down, but you're sitting down in the boat and all you want to do is pull into that water. That's probably... The best description I can give of it. And, and let's let's face it, there isn't a lot of room in those boats once you're finished. There's not. There's some very unladylike photos of me finishing <laughs> races where my legs are just fallen over out of, out into the water, and because for some reason you get extremely hot in your feet as well because all the blood's gone down. And oh, I don't miss that. I, I do in a strange way. I miss it, but I don't want to do all the work that I'd have to do to even get to that level again. That's how you you. You're not alone with respect to other athletes who have said very similar things. Now, let's talk about transition and the support that sport gave you over the course of your career. Can you talk a little bit about what support mechanisms were in place at the AIS around athletes having a focus outside of sport to maybe look at in the future as as their careers continued to evolve? Uh, And what sort of things did you... I suppose, observe when it came to your own personal journey to prepare for life after sport whilst you're in the AIS? The AIS. I think when I was going through AIS, uh, it was just after the Athens Olympics that I came in, so 2004, 2005. And the idea of um, athletes having careers along or developing a career alongside your sport was almost like an ideal of we need to have or we should be looking at, but we're not really investing in it. And I don't mean that in sort of a harsh way. It was just sort of in that early development stage that everything needs to go through where they were sort of just figuring it out. So they had a, they had a department called the Athlete Career and Education. And to me, in my ideals, I went in and I would speak to my what they would call ACE advisor, so Athlete career education was shortened to ACE. And they were great at handling the, the administration of your university. So um, prior, this was a similar at a similar time to when um, elite athlete programs were starting to be implemented into universities. And I think University of Canberra, who was aligned with the AIS, was probably the first university. I might be wrong, fact check. But they were certainly one of the first universities to have the elite athlete program because of they had that relationship with the with the AIS. And so naturally I came from University of Queensland and before online university options was were available, I um, moved from Queensland down to Canberra to be with AIS and so enrolled in University of Canberra and studied through there. And the ACE advisors were great at putting on an AIS letterhead the dates of travel for you for your European travel or your competitions domestically. So proving that you weren't a university student who couldn't be bothered going to tutorials, you were legitimately not in the town, not in the country, to be physically attending lectures at this stage also and tutorials. Um, so in that regards, they were brilliant in those early years where university was going through that transition to being a lot more online. But when I started to get to the end of my undergrad, and I, was, I had that itch of wanting to get some career um, experience. And Sally, how far into your time at the AIS did you start to finish or get to the end of the undergrad? Um, probably 
three three to four years. So into AIS. So does that mean that oh. you were were you studying part time? Um, yeah, I was I was studying part time. They brought in trimesters at this stage as well, so I was doing trimesters wherever I could. So I would study all year round. There was no point really having if you're doing only two subjects each trimester. There wasn't re- I didn't really see a point in having six months almost off over the summer. Yeah, because I wasn't off travelling or doing anything. I was just training. So once I got to the stage where I wanted to look at career development and actually getting that next step of what that next job. I found that they really didn't have the skills or the networks to be able to facilitate that. I mean, the best job, I was studying um, economics, so a little bit of finance oriented, and they thought, well, maybe we could ask the Australian Sports Commission if you could work in the finance department. And I worked in the finance department, and I just, like, did data entry for grants. And so while that was, you know, good to get paid, it was, I knew that it wasn't really what I was looking for with, with where I wanted to go. But that, isn't so, that interesting though? I mean, I've always thought that one thing that, and I say this to my children from time to time, is that you have to actually go through different experiences, whether it be in any aspect of life, to work out what you really, really like. But more importantly, it's actually what you don't like. So whilst maybe at the time that was, and it would have been probably you know, relatively boring from the perspective of just entering things into a, into a database or spreadsheets around those sorts of things you were doing, it clearly gave you an understanding that that wasn't for you. So you could experience it, park it and go to the next experience. Yeah, I think for me as well, it was, um, I, I quite enjoyed it because I could switch off and just do something mindless and get paid to do it and um, be in an environment that wasn't just athletes. So I, I quite enjoyed it, but it just wasn't sort of, I didn't feel like it was a step towards where I wanted to go. And I think also going back to identity, I um, I wanted to break free of anything sport-related. Like I didn't want to be the athlete who was given a job at the sports commission. Like that was just that was just too easy. Like I wanted a bit of a challenge and something that I could own as my own, my own thing and something that I created and, and possibly not be Sally the Rower in that environment. And it sounds like certainly from things that I've read, over the course of the last year or two, that athlete transition has come a long way, not only at the AIS, but at all professional sporting levels where it's finally being recognised that there needs to be a plan B, to your point, that athletes, the majority of athletes anyway, who aren't going to necessarily be able to retire through the money that they've earned during their sporting career, that they are going to have to focus on a long transition and actually start to prepare for it well, well before they actually leave the sport, and you and we, and I'm sure you, you would know of of peers and people that you've you've worked with and been involved with at the sporting level that maybe haven't transitioned as successfully as others because they've left that transition until the end, and they've they've not worried about it until they've actually finished, as opposed to just inch by inch preparing as they go along, and then suddenly as they finish, at least they've got an understanding of what they're probably going to do as opposed to waiting for that to happen when they finish. Yeah, it's definitely come a long, long way for sure. And I think a big piece of that is people, like the movement of of authenticity, like people actually being able to talk about how they're feeling. And, you know, that I think that plays actually a huge part 
in the transition because all of a sudden these what I call two-week heroes being Olympic stars um, come back and people just think from the outside they must have everything together. They've got their medal. They must be loving it. They've got the uniform. What a star. But actually it's quite lonely when you come back. Um, And I think that ability to see some of the top athletes or even just athletes in general or anyone really talk about, well, actually, it's probably not as what it looks like. And instead of keeping up the facade, actually talk about reality and, and society's actually now in a position that they can hear about it and listen to it. And probably a bigger step forward has been from males in society who can actually talk about it now as well. And so when people start talking about it, then the problem starts be- like becoming bigger because instead of just sweeping up or people not being generally aware of it, it's, you, you can't solve something that you don't know exists. And so when people start talking about it, then, okay, we've got to do more about this and we've got to invest more about this because this is a real thing. Well, I mean, um, look, you're spot on. I mean, I think one of the things that yeah, really fascinated me and really got me into the whole area of, of athlete transition just as something that I've always been interested in was the fact that back in 1994, a very good friend of mine was essentially booted out the door of an AFL club a couple of weeks after pre-season training started after Christmas in 94. And, you know, back then it was pretty rudimentary with respect to, look, sorry, buddy, you you know, you're not wanted on the list anymore. Um, we're going we're gonna to cut you. you. You move forward to now and obviously mental health is an enormous issue in society. And that's, I think sport has played a, you know, a pretty big role in, in making it. And I don't mean to sound uh, disrespectful with this, but mainstream and, and the fact that, if sporting men and women who are seen as being role models in society can come out to your point and and share their stories and be vulnerable about the issues that they're facing is going to help in all sorts of areas. And I think about uh, conversations that I've had both on this podcast and, and just uh, around when I've been speaking with athletes is that the one thing that they've always said is that it's taken a long time for sport to listen to the athlete. And often there's been programs that have been put in place with the best intentions, but the people they actually haven't consulted with are the ones that are the ones that are going to be using it. And I think that that sounds like it's starting to change. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's getting there. It, it's getting there. But what the absolute right solution is, I, I don't know, because the, the thing you need to balance out is, is that there's a, a level of absolute commitment that you need to give to your sport to be successful. And so you're not going to get the absolute complete balance to be able to just smoothly walk into life after sport. So it's like, what is that minimum balance that you need to enable you to absolutely focus on that one thing called sport that you're trying to be the world's best at, but you're going to have a level of imbalance as you focus on one that thing. But what's just enough of everything else that we need going on so that it exists, so that when it comes a time, we can bring one down and possibly bring another five other things up so you just, and have that balance. You're almost constantly in this state of, of managing those two competing interests. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you're in sport and you're in the thick of it, um, and even during the cycle of a year when you're going through you know, your off-season, your on-season, like that, that flows as well, that you're going up and down, as you can have that balance, you've got a bit of space to have a bit more balance and you've got to take that opportunity. But it, there's certainly times, and, it, and for an Olympic athlete, 
those that space to have more balance comes in that first two years of the Olympiad. But as you get to the last two years of the Olympiad, that sport has to gradually keep taking over. And you've got to, the trick is to keep other things still existing, even to a smaller level, they've got to exist. Um, so that when it comes time, it's not too hard to find them again and switch them back on and bring them up a bit more. Um, and that, that must be quite daunting, especially for, a, if you're like a first-time Olympian, where you probably, and you mentioned this earlier in the conversation, that you you learnt so much when you went to your second Olympics, when you look back and go, God, you, how I wasn't prepared, I had no idea what I was doing. And then as you get into your third, once again, it must multiply. But it, it must be, at the same time, pretty scary when you are throwing all your eggs into one basket, whether it's for one year, two years. And I guess the thing that I've really got to understand by speaking with both yourself and a couple of other Olympians is the fact that you've got, you know, you might have a couple of heats, a rapid charge if you don't go quite so well, and then you're into the semis and the finals. So what, you may have four races in an Olympian. Uh, you've trained for four years for four races, which what take a combined total of what, 25 minutes, maybe a fraction here or there. Yeah, I think my stat is uh, 45 minutes of racing at the Olympic Games in uh, 12 years of professional sport. <laughs> it was professional rowing. That is, that is ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> but does, and do you think that does that – and, you know, a lot of people talk about this, the whole sort of search for, for satisfaction and fulfilment. I, I don't want to talk too much specifically about – the sport itself but looking back now a three-time olympian a multiple world cup medalist a junior world champion which may have put significant internal pressure on you i'm not sure about that but do you look back on your career as a success i do i do but in the in the scope of life in general so i think would i have liked to one one more medals particularly at the olympics yeah definitely did i enjoy the highs absolutely did I fall over a lot and fail at times? Yep, did that. And I had some really, really hard times be it with um, uh, interpersonal differences or physical challenges or political um, structures that you have to sit within and compete with. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. But it was successful. Um, and I think the, the character that I am at the end of it is probably the, the proudest that... I would be that would be my my definition of success it's fascinating to hear you say that because it sounds like you're at peace with it regardless of of the things that you know maybe results you could have got that you didn't and all the rest of it because a a lot of athletes really carry their in their perceived lack of success heavily and the one thing that really fascinates me is the fact that regardless of the sport that they're in if you're an Olympian and you're representing Australia, well, then you know what, you're, you're one of 400-odd people that get to represent their country out of 26 million every four years. It's quite extraordinary to get to that level itself. But obviously, as you continue to get better and better, you're wanting to be the best there is, not just the best in Australia. You want to be the best in the world. And and obviously, that, that can take its toll. Tell me, Sally, what have you learned from sport that has helped you in life after sport? And work and 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 not and working in an office. Working in an office, eh. um, scary stuff. Um, everybody's different. 
everyone's motivated by different things, which is strange that I learned that from sport, where the assumption would be that everyone just wants to win. Um, but everyone is motivated differently. Um, and if you can key into that, the power of people is really, really quite exciting to be a part of. I, I think sport probably taught me to really appreciate how to bring others in and how to combine strengths of others and weaknesses of others to get this um, great outcome. Um, and, and one of the things that I absolutely loved about sport was um, when people went into something without thinking that they could do it or achieve a level and then you sort of you work with them and you guide them and you do it all together and then all of a sudden you create this outcome which they never believed that they possibly could do. Um, I find that, that just one of the most rewarding rewarding things when you sort of get more out of people than they think it's capable. And um, and I I loved it in sport. It's probably how I exited rowing. Um, and I I really enjoy it with um, in the corporate world as well. Really enjoy it. And I and I think that sometimes in the corporate world that I just hope that it pays off. Um, because sometimes one thing that really um, baffles me and, and sort of conflict is quite conflicting to the way that I operate is this. Um, you need to, you need to sort of self promote in a way that you need to. You can't just be a hard worker in the corner that nobody sees. Somehow you've got to figure out how people see that. Whereas in sport, you um, you just you know the date of the race and you just make sure you win that, and that pretty much gets the attention that you need. Do you think that that is even more prevalent for women in finance? I, look, I'm sure people have their experiences, but and I might be just um, the 20 year old at the Olympics, but I don't see it yet. Yeah, but I, but I, I may be that 20 year old at the Olympics. I hope not. Um, and I hope in 10 years' time I don't look back and go, oh, how naive was I? That was happening all around me. But I have genuine belief and faith that the world is changing. And I also am very fortunate that because I come from a sport background in finance, which is very male, it's a very easy conversation for men to just walk into if you've come from sport. So I don't, I certainly don't get it as much as maybe some other people do because I can just switch into any sport conversation. I moved to Melbourne for work and I make sure that I know who won the latest AFL game. Who do you support, by, um, the, who do you support, by the way? Um, controversially, I go for Carlton because um, I used to go for Sydney Swans because I learnt from somebody who was just an avid Sydney Swans supporter. And then I moved to Adelaide and I went for Port Adelaide, mainly because everyone around me went for Adelaide Crows, so I had to go for Port Adelaide. Um, and then I moved to Melbourne and everyone's like, you can't have a non-Melbourne, a non-Victorian team. <laughs> and so they're like, go for Richmond. I was like, I can't go for Richmond. They've just won. So I went for Carlton because I like Navy and they weren't doing well. So when they start going well, I'm going to say I was there from the beginning. Well, you've got... <laughs> or at the bottom anyway. My, my Two of my three daughters and my wife are all avid Carlton supporters, so they'll be very happy to hear that. Yeah, that's no, good. One of the things that you mentioned in your, in your bio was your love of rugby. Growing up in Toowoomba, you played until you were 12, I think, and was the first female ever to represent uh, Toowoomba at the state championships. And the great then, Darling Downs. And, and, and then you had to stop. And then you, yeah. went, you went to boarding school in Brisbane, found rowing, had an amazing career in rowing, and then lo and behold, you're back playing rugby after, mind you, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, uh, having a pretty severe back injury where... Sally had to have surgery and had to teach herself how to walk again. So before we get into the, 
the sort of how the rowing, oh, sorry, the the uh, the rugby has helped you transition out of elite sport, even though you're back in elite sport. What on earth possessed you to to do that off the back of what was clearly a pretty severe back injury? Yeah, so um, to go one step further, like the back injury was a result of my back just giving up about a week before we flew to Rio um, for the Olympics. And I was fortunate enough to race. It wasn't pretty. But as a result, I, and I was able to race because I simply asked the doctor and physio, I said, do I have to get surgery if I don't race? They said, yes. And do I have to get surgery if I do race? I said, yes. So I said, well, that's an easy one. We're racing. And off we went. Just, just, bef- just before you, you go on, what's that like from a mindset point of view when you know that you're at the Olympics and you are not 90%, you are not 80%, you're probably 30 or 40 you're competing at the the absolute pinnacle of, of world sport. How does that make yeah. you feel? And also thinking that it, uh, I, I knew it was my last Olympics as well. Um, it was tough, actually. Um, but, you know, I, I had had just a, um, a pretty horrid year that year and my original, I was in the doubles, so there was only just one other person with me, which probably was uh, enabled me to race. If I was in an eight, they would have just put a reserve in and off, it, off they went. Yeah. Um, but I had actually been selected with um, a girl who I'd rode in Beijing with, and I was just so excited about this doubles combination. We'd come together and just, it just sang. And in our final trials race, um, where it was, yep, that was the double, she actually broke a rib. So I had this massive high of going... I've just, I've cracked it. I've got the doubles that I think we can do this. And then probably six weeks later, the selectors basically said, I, I remember going down to the sheds and said, oh, yep, such and such, um, Liz is not coming down today. Uh, she's no longer selected and we're not looking at, like, basically she won't be coming back in after injury. We don't think she can get up to um, speed by the Olympics. So I was like, massive high, fell over a little bit. And then my option was... Um, a 19-year-old girl who was just an absolute um, lovely, lovely person and she reminded me of me when I was 19 with all this talent um, and no idea about what you could actually do with it. And so she was essentially the reserve of the entire team and she jumped in my boat um, and we had two months to get up to speed and um, we actually ended up coming second at the World Cup that year and it was just, as I said, it was, I, I taught her how to, had a skull at an international level and then all of a sudden we were coming second at the World Cup. And she was like, oh, she was just in disbelief that that was actually possible. So um, just as a bit of backstory. And so when I came to the Olympics and that had happened, it was almost like I, I knew it was done. Like it was, I couldn't do much about it. There was just nothing I could do about that. I wanted to race because I had got all that way. And so that was, I was so grateful of Rowing Australia to actually allow me to race. But then my focus really, I had to just, change my focus. So we weren't going to win the gold medal. We weren't going to medal. We'd be lucky to make the final. I'd be lucky to actually get through enough races to actually make it to the finals. And my, my focus shift to what experience can I help my doubles partner have at this Olympic Games where they're just an absolute... These Olympics for her were an absolute surprise packet for her. She, that wasn't part of the plan. You know, the next Olympics was really going to be her thing. Yeah. And so what experience could I give her that will set her career up, that will be just so positive and really put her in position that when she goes to Tokyo 2020, which is now Tokyo 21, you know, what can she have learned from this experience that will just put her in much better position to win a medal and get it right 
in Tokyo 21. So that, that must have been an unbelievable... Well, maybe it wasn't hard, but there wouldn't be too many athletes that would have been able to handle it like that from the perspective of you've come all this way, this is your last Olympics, and you know you had to completely shift your mindset from yourself to your partner to give them the best chance to succeed, not necessarily at that Olympics, but the ones that are coming up. I mean, that must have been what's an incredible thing to do, but it must have been, at the time, pretty confronting for you. Yeah, it was hard. One of the things I really, learned really early on from one of the psychologists was you've got to learn what um, irrational acceptance is. So the ability to go, oh, it is what it is. <laughs> um, Easier said than done, by the way. Absolutely easy said than done. But um, I think in that instance, like, there, there really wasn't anything I could do. And if the other option was sitting on the sideline, I certainly didn't want to do that. So I think with it all, you know, we weren't going, we just weren't going to get a result. So the whole pressure of the Olympics actually came off and you really enjoy just being a part of it because there was just no way that, like, I, I couldn't row at full slide. <laughs> like, there's no way we were going to pull it out of the bag. It was, I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't sit down and vote um, and you've got to sit down rowing. So, um, you know, that was just totally off the cards. So it was all about, you know, one thing that I could give and to her was that experience of seeing the Olympics for what it is without the pressure but knowing that the next time she goes, there'll be pressure on her to perform. But I think also going through that experience, she'll actually really learn what, you know, pressure is a privilege, you know. If you've got pressure, you know, you can do it, whereas we didn't have pressure because we just couldn't do it. I've got just a couple of quick more questions before we wrap up, Sally, but you've just basically described what I would call as a mentor. And every athlete that I've ever spoken to on this podcast and just in conversations have said, Mentors have been extraordinarily important to them. What about for yourself? You've just described how you mentored a fellow competitor and a teammate at an Olympics. Can you tell me about the mentors that you've had and how they've helped you in your career? Yeah, I suppose um, at a younger age, I was probably a little bit too stubborn and just not uh, mature enough to understand the true value of a mentor. Um, I think my looking back, my mentors were probably you know those those coaches that were part of critical times in my career um and they were really just a just somebody who who i had confidence in that i could be really raw and open um and be myself around and and be vulnerable and i think they were really key for me surviving in that environment where sometimes you do have to put up a bit of a shield um to survive and not let everybody always know what you're feeling thinking um just to purely maintain a level of um power for lack of a better word um but i think as i've got older and a lot more mature um i tend to i I have a great professional mentor and um i found her by chance and it was more not because i was looking for a mentor and i went out going i need a mentor will you be my mentor it was just we have created a friendship um she just happens to be a couple of decades older than me and um, has been through it all and is on the, you know, the end of her career while I just start my corporate career. And, and she's just a fascinating woman who's just tough. Um, and so, and we just share stories. Um, and and I, I often thank her and she, te- she tells me not to because um, she gets so much back from the relationship as much as I get in. And 
I sort of nod my head and sort of go, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, that's just nice. But I, I, I can see that because from my own experience with my teammate, you know, the energy that I got back from being able to share from my experiences, the times that I stuffed up and could have done it better and the times that I did really well and sharing those, what the keys to success, like you do get so much back from that. So uh, I'm a big believer in mentoring now and I think with a bit of maturity on board, I, I, I do try and source those those pillars of that, that I can trust in my life um, to be me and us and be vulnerable around because you just learn so much from them. Um, it's just so, so rewarding. And then when you get the opportunity to share your own knowledge and be the mentor, it's just incredible. And, you know, the interesting point about that is the fact that in my experience, 99.9% of people are absolutely delighted that you'd actually even ask them uh, once you've, once anybody has finally worked out who a mentor might be and, and the sort of the personality match because that's obviously really critical in all of this as well to ensure that there's that level of trust which you mentioned so people can give you full frank and fearless feedback because all they're trying to do is help you improve and at the same time that mentoring relationship allows them to learn things as well which I think is probably missed on some people that they think that it's only one way but it's very much a two-way relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Sally, the final question, and and I know I mentioned this earlier, that everyone gets this who's on the Wide Open Road podcast. So what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you knew then what you know now about your elite sporting career and the transition to life after sport? Uh, this is an excellent question. And, you know, if I had my time again, I would change just my attitude more than anything um, and have perspective on how long life can be. So my, my big message would be just be patient, you know, life, like this whole thing, whether it's rowing, whether it's life, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. And, you know, um, you don't need to uh, be in the, the best team, um, you know, tomorrow and probably sacrifice some, some key experiences to be there, um, that just learn from every single experience, good or bad, and, and really appreciate the journey rather than just focus on the outcomes. Sally Keogh, it's been terrific speaking with you. Thanks so much. Uh, We look forward to catching up again soon uh, and a really great message to finish off, but thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Ed. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'd love to know what you think, so please email me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com if you'd like to share your thoughts, suggestions or recommendations with me. And if you happen to know a retired professional athlete who might like to share their story, please contact me as I'd love to speak with them. And if you do like what you hear, please subscribe to the Wide Open Road podcast and share this podcast with your friends. And remember, our next episode will be released in two weeks' time. Until then, all the best.